Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more information about how to run a scientific podcast, visit azonetwork.com slash podcasts. Our guest today is Daniel Brazier, Solutions Engineer at WP Engine the leading WordPress digital experience platform which empowers brands to drive business forward faster through online experiences. We'll be talking about how cybersecurity is becoming increasingly important in a work-from-home world. We're here today to talk about cybersecurity, and I'm joined by two guests today. Um, I've got Will Souter, who is our resident AV guy, and you'll know him from the podcast about podcasts episode. And I'm also joined by Daniel Brazier, who is a solutions engineer at WP Engine, and we're here to talk about cybersecurity. So, uh, Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Frank. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. So we're talking about cybersecurity and you're a solutions engineer at WP Engine. Can you just explain to us the kind of things that you deal with from an e-commerce perspective or just wider cybersecurity in general? My, My role right now as a solutions engineer is largely like a consultative role. So I sit in our organization kind of on the pre-sales side of things. So we're very heavily invested up front in making sure that we completely understand the the solution that our customers are going to need. So we have to understand their application, their needs, their requirements, anything around compliance, lots of points around regulation. We do lots of kind of more technically involved RFPs that we, we have to kind of take on board and digest ultimately to be able to make a recommendation about the size of a server that someone's going to need or, or what other tools we might need to put in place to help them stay secure. In terms of my background, I, I'm ex-developer, so I, I kind of started off building websites in my bedroom as a teenager um, and kind of progressed from there and have worked in a few different agencies, various different size clients, different sectors, different industries, and have grown from there over the years. Brilliant. And of course, I've got microphone envy looking at the quality of your video as well. So just explain to the listeners a little bit about what you do as a side gig. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm, when, when I'm not behind a keyboard and, and nerding out about websites, I play a bit of guitar and, and music generally. Um, so there's lots of kind of home recording going on. Excellent. Not dissimilar to yourself, Will. Yeah, very similar. So when, when we're talking about cybersecurity, I kind of feel that it's a bit of a an ostrich's head in the sand. Most people are kind of you know, happy in blissful ignorance. But really, that's that's a dated approach. And how important is it that companies take cybersecurity seriously? Uh, for me, it's a huge thing. The requirements are changing all the time. So it, it generally isn't a one-shot, build a new website, cross your fingers, it's secure, and, and kind of move on to the next challenge. It's an ongoing piece to kind of stay on top of, keeping up with security chain uh, requirements and, and different frameworks and policies and things that come out, right down to kind of patching and updating and keeping servers secure and things. So it's a it's an ever-moving thing, really. Yeah. And uh, mentioning off air before, you said you specialize a lot in e-commerce and GDPR. So how how have you seen GDPR since the change two years ago, or two and a half, nearly three years ago now? E-commerce makes up a a huge part of our business. Being WordPress-focused, WooCommerce being the primary e-com solution there makes up, I want to say, something like 38% of e-com stores are run on WooCommerce. So it's it's a big part of the market. So us, us kind of helping do it in line with kind of best practice around security is, is obviously a massive part of our business. How, how GDPR ties in with that is probably made even more complicated for us just by the nature of us being a worldwide company headquartered in the US. So 
it's generally not just a conversation around GDPR. It's usually involving things like ISO 27001. It's involving safe harbor agreements. It's involving Privacy Shield and the changes that have happened there. So it's it's often got a few moving parts. GDPR specifically, you know, there was obviously a big push, a big panic, despite years of warning. You know, a lot of people left it till the last minute, which is anecdotally quite a common theme with security processes and things for a lot of people. Since it's happened, honestly, it's, it's kind of a thing where most people have figured out what they need to do to, to be aligned with GDPR. And that's kind of where it stayed. I think there's still a lot of myths, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of uh, fear around what GDPR actually means in broad terms. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of more of an ongoing conversation about what are the little parts that we can move forward to, to make sure that we get GDPR compliant and stay there. Yeah. And of course, CCPA, the California Data Protection Act was uh, not far behind afterwards. But how, how do you see the rest of the world following suit? Because I know that Europe have certain standards. And what will this look like in five years time? For me, the biggest overarching change with GDPR was actually more of a call to arms for people just to treat other people's data as they want theirs to be treated. That's that's kind of my big takeaway from GDPR. I, I feel like that's very much because of the implications of GDPR and essentially saying anyone that does business with someone in the EU has to, to conform to this. I, I think that's kind of pushed the conversation a lot more, even in places where they are outside of its jurisdiction. So I think it's definitely brought the conversation to more of a worldwide level. Yeah. So... Moving back towards the sort of cybersecurity um, issues, what are the different kinds of threats that are out there? Such a huge range. I mean, there are obviously the classic ones that kind of make headlines. One of the records for kind of the largest ever DDoS attacks was broken this year. But you see all these kind of big distributed denial of service things, which which sound scary, sound like something out of a, a Bond movie or something. Everything from there right down to weak passwords and social engineering and kind of everything in between. You know, the, the way security professionals talk about networks and software we tend to split things into layers or stacks uh, generally speaking any one of those layers or stacks is going to have some kind of vulnerability that can be exploited at some point or another yeah just for for my benefit and i'm sure for for the listeners as well what's a distributed denial of service what's a ddos what does that mean <laughs> so when we talk about ddos they're the ones that make the news generally speaking so denial of service is an attack where um, an application is targeted so that it can no longer provide the service it's designed to to its end users the extra D in DDoS essentially is making that distributed. So rather than a small number of, of attackers, it becomes a much wider thing. So it generally is connected with talk around viruses and botnets and, and large numbers of computers on the internet, all making requests to one application simultaneously and repeatedly um, to stop something being able to do whatever it's designed for. Cool. And what are the types of attacks? We're we talking about things like uh, brute force attacks, I think we mentioned before, and malware. Just give, give us a, the cliff notes on, on what the difference is between the different types. Brute force is something that kind of comes up probably in, in slightly more limited circles, but that's more about there's a finite number of passwords, the, the tendency amongst users to reuse passwords to make them easier to remember, maybe to make them something tied in with the application that they're doing. You know, there was a, a story recently about uh, Donald Trump's Twitter account and, and what his password may or may not have been. And, you know, some, some conversations there, sidestepping the political side of it. That's probably a really good lesson um, in terms of don't make your password something with the year or your birth date or, you know, something like that in it. That's, that's always a big thing that a lot of people do. Brute force is basically the practice of running through common combinations, whether they be dictionary words, common passwords, passwords that have previously been found in database leaks and things. There's, there's quite an art form in knowing that X percentage of people use one, two, three, four, five, six for their password or QWERTY, you know, the top row of the keyboard. So secure password policy, password changes frequently. 
being aware if your password is on a on a leaked database there are services out there where you can check that so staying on top of those things is important with password security for sure yeah. avoiding post-it notes using password safes how, how likely would it be to say that my data had been leaked by by somebody who's got my data databases are leaked probably a lot more than we want to acknowledge there are some obvious ones that make headlines you know again depending on the the scale of the breach and, and how many people's data is involved coming full circle and kind of tying that into GDPR, the, the big thing is, you know, not storing data that is able to identify a person and tell you too much about their life in the same place, in the same table, in the same database. So again, the art form now that we're seeing a lot is people breaching multiple databases across multiple companies and actually being able to piece together things from various leaks to build a bigger picture about someone's life and, and their habits and, and where they might be vulnerable. There's there's a great service that I use a lot called Have I Been Pwned, which is just a, a freely accessible site that's maintained. And every time there's a big leak, that will be updated and you can type your email address in there and it will tell you if you appear on one of those database leaks. That, so that leads us on nicely to uh, to whose responsibility is cybersecurity within a business. So Will, well, I'll lead on you here because it, it seems to be that you're banging the drum certainly with, within our company. But how, how do you see the, the responsibility falling on people? Yeah, that's it. I think... Within a company, I think it's important that everyone has an idea about cybersecurity and you know and what some of the risks are. Not it's not that everyone has to be an expert, but a lot of the leaks and the breaches that you do see, particularly you know, the ones that end up in the headlines, like the way people often get in, isn't isn't often through some devious, really clever coding hack. Usually, you just call up the business and say, "Hey, can you tell me your password?" And someone does. <laughs> I know the, there was a there was the hack on Twitter a few months ago where a bunch of really high profile accounts tweeted out the same tweet saying, "I'll send one cent in Bitcoin to this address and I'll send you back $10,000 in Bitcoin." And <laughs> and and that yeah, that happened because yeah, the target there was a couple of employees at Twitter. Yeah. So yeah, everyone needs to be aware of the risk. Everyone everyone has some responsibility. Yeah, I think you do need a sort of champion within the business to be driving that and to be educating everyone. And if that comes from the top of the business, then that's even better. Mm. Just interestingly, you mentioned people. It sounds like people are one of the big weak spots. It's uh, I had a friend who was working, she was a, a, a penetration tester for a cybersecurity firm, but it was just her sort of like milling around and they got a security passes, uh, cut her a card to get into the, the business. And then she ended up walking in, interrupting the CFO and the CEO, bold as brass, walks in, says, excuse me, guys, I'm um, Jenny from uh, from IT. We need your laptop because there's someone trying to access it right now. The CFO goes, there you go, two hands. Uh, please look after that. And then she walks out and she's got it. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> Definitely. There's all sorts of anecdotes around that that I've heard over the years. Uh, there's a a pen tester I follow on Twitter who's um, super prolific, does a lot of like big banking customers and his thing is don't underestimate the power of a, a high-vis jacket and an iPad with a letter from the CEO um, and, and it's amazing what you can get away with uh, if you're confident enough. Yeah, I think you've got a couple of an- analogies that around Frank Abagnale and in fact, I, I did hear a lovely one about, about a hotel room and just generally how the whole cybersecurity infrastructure works. Do you want to walk us through that, Daniel? Of course, yeah. The, the hotel room is probably one of our most overused analogies um, in our organization for kind of explaining cybersecurity and for context, first thing you're going to walk through a hotel room, sorry, you're going to walk through a hotel lobby um, and you're going to come across um, a receptionist who's going to start taking some details off of you. That might be something as simple as, you know, think of that like an SSL certificate or it might be something as simple as like, hey, this is a firewall, checking that the person walking in isn't inherently looking dodgy. 
And as you progress up towards your hotel room, there's all sorts of other measures. Maybe your card only takes you to certain floors on the lift. Maybe it only opens one one door. There's a peephole, you know, is, is, is that equivalent to something like antivirus or malware checking going on? It's all of these different measures that ultimately add up to to form the overall security landscape of, of that one experience checking in and, and staying, spending some time in a hotel room. That's kind of a, a, a nice analogy for how we, we look at servers around firewalls, SSL certificates, secure passwords, and then the outward things that we can do. You know, someone knocks on the door, do we just open it and invite them in? Do we pop a chain on? Do we look through the peephole? I'm staying in a hotel. Am I expecting room service? You know, who is this knocking on my door? It all kind of ties in. Nice. I think that makes it a lot easier for me to understand. And I'm sure it does for everybody listening. But so just coming back to the the responsibility um, aspect. So how important is the leadership? I know certainly, Will, you might be the champion, but you're you're often bugged by our CEO. He's on at you to make sure that everybody's security is up to a certain level. So how important is that leadership, Will? Yeah, I think that's really important. I think, like I said, you need champions within the business to sort of drive it and to interact with people and, and sort of educate them. But if everyone in the business knows that this is a directive from the, you know, this is a, a core part of how the company operates that everyone needs to understand their security responsibilities. Uh, yeah, it just, it carries so much more weight than if it's just the nerd saying, change your passwords. You know, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> when it comes from the top like that, you know, when you have the, the, the leadership driving that it become it does become you know an inherent part of how everything in the business is run it's not just what people are doing but it's how your systems are built everything you do at every stage that's that's one of the things you take into consideration so what steps can we take uh, on a personal level to mitigate the cybersecurity risks that we mentioned before what can what can i do as an employee from my take on that you know and the, and the things that i've preached about in many previous job roles that i've had and, and kind of continue to do i think there's there's definitely a sense check to most things you know you receive an email now we get all sorts of help from gmail and all these other email clients that say hey are you sure this is someone you want to email back double checking that and and responding to those kind of tools and things that are there that they're there for a reason and even when they're not checking where a link goes before you click it you know are are you expecting an email from from finance asking you to transfer some money that that kind of pause for thought i think is important especially as everyone's busier and pushed and and you know a lot of our customers are still working on reduced headcounts where people are on furlough and things. The pressure is on for a lot of people. So just taking that moment just to stop and think, and, and is this something expected or something normal? Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and then outside of that, you know, we've, we've spoken about password managers and things, you know, the fine line between making something complex enough that it's not easy to guess, but also memorable enough that it doesn't have to be on a post-it note. Finding that right kind of balance between the the process and and the security and and making it something that doesn't put people off and encourage them to do kind of questionable things. Where, where would you see? Um, and I suppose, Will, this is probably uh, more for yourself or, or Daniel. Feel free to chip in as well. Where uh, cybersecurity and the science, engineering, and healthcare industries meet, what's what's the potential for for the risk there? What's the risk appetite for companies working within those industries? Security around. The healthcare industry is, is huge. The, the expectations of, of privacy there and, and the volume of personal data. We often think of personally identifiable information being a name and an address, but it can be things right down to your name and your job function. I can go ahead and find you on LinkedIn that way, and then I can start putting pieces together. And if I can do that in a reasonable number of steps, then then that is definitely something that should be governed by by GDPR. 
when you start magnifying that and legitimately making it more personal and, and talking about someone's health concerns, tests they've undergone and, and what the outcomes of those were at a hospital and all sorts of things, you know, that that just compounds that even more. We Interestingly, on a, on a global scale, you know, we often come across in the US, we come a lot of, uh, they have HIPAA compliance over there, which is, is to do with the storage and, and regulation of how we store information from the healthcare industry. Again, heavily regulated, a lot of expectations around that, but they, they can definitely be deep and they can be hard to navigate sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the biggest risk is for anyone involved, like I said, in you know, health healthcare, sort of any life science companies that are involved in trials, anything like that, where they've got large amounts of like important sensitive data. You know, that's that's the real sort of type of thing that might be a risk. So you got a large amount of personally identifiable and beyond just that, you know, potentially quite sensitive healthcare data. But in terms of our clients, you know, a, a lot of them are as you said, Frankie, sort of science and engineering companies who aren't directly involved in, in healthcare like that. You know, they're building the tools, but they're not you know, actually using them. And in those cases, they're not, they're probably not going to be as big a target for those huge leaks and those those big things. There's there's still a risk, but the risk is more from a ransomware attack or you know, they could be recruiting that company as a sort of, uh, like we talked about with the, you know, the IT contractors. If you have, you know, someone from an IT contractor calling up a bigger business saying, hey, I need to get onto your laptop. That's the situation where, you know, risk can enter in. So people who are IT contractors or people who are providing instruments or services to other companies could be a, could be a sort of secondary target on the way into some bigger business. Just thinking of it, so IoT, the Internet of Things, how how would that affect it if if somebody like a Jaguar or a Tesla got hacked? They've got all that hundreds and millions of um, driving hours worth of data, and if if that were compromised, then what what's the implication there? I, I can't even imagine it. I'm sure you can give me an example. But I was um I was uh, reading something the other day about you know, hospitals that have been hacked. They can't operate because they can't. They don't have any patient data. They don't have the prescription informations. Uh, care homes that were, were attacked as well, and you know, I suppose it's it's on the care home to sort out or pay the ransom. It's going to be uh, serious implications. But yeah, so I, I think yeah, many people wouldn't even know the threats that they're under. I suppose it's it's as creative as the hackers want to be. Yeah, that's it. I think the ransomware attack on the NHS uh, that was a big headline grabbing thing. That I think things like that, along with GDPR and everything else in the last few years. It's it's part of the narrative that that means I think there has been a much better awareness of, of these kinds of risks in a lot of people's minds, you know, particularly people who are you know in in fairly high level jobs at companies that uh, have this kind of data. You know, anytime they hear one of these stories, it's going to go, oh yeah, what if that happened to us? You know, it's it's just helping to build that awareness of the risk. We spoke earlier about the, the various different types of attacks that we we see, and, and there's some really interesting trends, particularly through this year, as as the landscape has changed with people's internet use, and, and there's some really interesting data around the professionalism um, of the attacks has dropped through the floor, but the number of, of attacks and the, the types of attacks has, has shifted dramatically towards lower level things that for larger businesses would probably be sorted away for smaller businesses or businesses that haven't got the right posture around security definitely could become more of an issue more of a frustration tied in with kind of like we're seeing university students not on campus and out of boredom and out of kind of keeping themselves sharp they're choosing to go and do some some hacking and just poking and prodding at things to see what they can break and something that can be good spirited or you know not thinking about the impact can very quickly turn into denial of service, taking something offline, causing issues, accidentally leaking something. 
so the, the actual change and, and the scope in attacks has, has changed a lot recently as well. We still have headlines around DDoS attacks and X number of million of credit card numbers are leaked or, you know, whatever the headlines are, that's the stuff people want to read about in, in a newspaper. But actually at the lower level, how many billions of attacks do we have on a daily basis that, that are doing something very much lower impact, but can still be responsible for taking businesses offline or putting them out of business even? What are the biggest the biggest headline grabs that, that you've seen? What are the biggest, most embarrassing hacks that you've seen for companies out there? I remember MyFitnessPal, um, which I think was possibly already purchased by Under Armour. So, you know, huge international brand, if not associated with it at the time. I, I wouldn't want to commit to who owned it at what point, but, you know, they had a massive breach. And, and that was things like people's contact details and Facebook profiles, credit card information, eating habits, you know, c- curious stuff. But yeah, all stuff that you'd give to Facebook willingly. Yeah, that's where that, that's where that sort of overlaps, where it's not that's not cybersecurity as such, but it is personal data which exists out there in a database which you do not control. So it, there's definite overlaps with how much data you hand over to companies as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the willingness that we share data with and, and knowing that it's somewhere that we feel is secure on the face of it. You know, I, I unlock my phone with a picture of my face or my fingerprint and it feels secure. But actually, if we don't know what's going on behind the scenes at that company, we don't know who's sharing what. We don't know what their privacy policy actually allows them to do because we don't read those things. And actually, if something like my fitness pal is compromised, you know, the the cavalier attitude in me says, "Great, they know I had I had toast for breakfast or whatever the, the situation is." On the wider level, they know that I use a fitness app. They they can probably make a good guess at what other apps I use. They know I've got an iPhone. They can go ahead and guess. Oh, maybe you're using PayPal. Let's spam you with emails from PayPal for a few months and see if you slip up and send us some money that way. You know they. You don't need to get a lot of data and find a common email address across a lot of leaked databases before you can kind of make a reasonable guess at what tools someone's using day to day and actually start really targeting them in a way that feels a lot more personal, even though it might be on a scale of millions. Yeah, the other thing about you know, the data that's stored by social media companies and other companies is that even if you trust Facebook or Apple or Google's engineering and their security, it's like you'd, you'd hope that's pretty good, right? Like you say, it feels fairly secure. Do you also trust their hiring policies and that every single employee is fully trained? And like we said about earlier with the the Twitter hack, yeah, you know, there were a couple of Twitter employees that fell for that. Just moving back onto uh, on track now with um, talking about um, server space and uh, WP Engine. Obviously, we work with WP Engine. They they host our um, our own websites, and we work with lots of clients who buy web services. But uh, Daniel, do you want to just tell us where the typical weaknesses are within a site? I think I. Possibly cross-check the number earlier, but something like 51 or 52% of the um, vulnerabilities that we see across WordPress are plugin-based. Um, so, so one of the great things about uh, WordPress is that you don't have to repeat yourself. You don't have to do work that someone else has already done. You can very quickly kind of interface with external tools and things by installing pre-packaged code uh, that's going to kind of extend and add functionality in some way. The nature of it, though, is someone else wrote that code. Um, so again, touching on Bill's point about, hey, do you trust someone's hiring practices? Do you trust you know, the, the various different kind of stakeholders involved in each given project? A similar thing here, you know, you, you do diligence around uh, what plugin you choose um, and, and who wrote it and how often it's updated and, and what the support for it's like. Not only making the right choice in the first place, but ensuring that things like that are kept up to date is far and away the biggest kind of backdoor and the, and the biggest kind of scope for vulnerabilities that we see. Um, and, and how would you use, say, leading indicators to stuff out issues or, or you know, find challenges before they've even even happened? 
the scale that we work at and the number of sites that, that we host on our platform, we, we do as much proactive as, as we reasonably can. Um, so we subscribe to various different databases that, that announce vulnerabilities that are found in plugins. You know, it's easy to talk about hacking and, and kind of paint it as a, as a dark art and it's all evil people doing it. Actually, a lot of it's ethical hacking. People are just doing it because they want to help a company out want to earn some money um you know there's, there's all sorts of different kind of bounty programs and things that people take part in whenever these these vulnerabilities come up and, and they're diagnosed and they're diagnosed in, and, and disclosed in the right way we can respond to that and, and either patch things or turn certain things off or write to our customers and let them know hey this is this is potentially something you want to take a look at so there's some, there's some kind of early indicators we can use there what we then do beyond that is you know we we're going to sit there and, and keep an eye on resource usage you know if a server is generally using a certain level of, of resource and suddenly that goes through the roof overnight has someone just built the next facebook and it's all kicking off or is it something a bit more kind of malicious as someone taking over that site and using it as a botnet or you know mining cryptocurrencies a really common thing that we see kind of sneaking in through backdoors and plugins and things um so there's, there's all sorts of different red flags that we use what would be the cost of getting things wrong um i, I know we've covered a bit of this already but um i, I seem to think it's it's your money or your life or, or your reputation. What, what, what is the cost um, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen all sorts of different levels of this. So, so on, on the one hand, it can be complete ignorance and bliss that there's even a problem. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, at one extreme through frustration, through, you know, it's not caused us a problem, but we're aware that people keep trying to hack us right the way through to people going out of business quite literally life and death for certain industries. Speaking very recently to, to a company that handles utilities like gas lines and um, the, the electric grid and things like that. And if they had something compromised or they had a website that was in some way interfacing with their internal network and it was then breached, that could be huge. You know, that they're a prime attack target for, for you know, terrorist organizations and things. So it's super important to them to go through. There's a lot more hoops to jump through, a lot more conversation to be had, um, you know, a lot more checklists and making things a bit more legally binding um, than the average customer that we talk to, for sure. But um, it's about making sure that we have the right questions and, and the right conversation there. Um, okay, so what are uh, what are automated daily backups and why are they important? Yeah, so it's something we, we do on the platform. Um, the automation piece, again, coming back to just if the threats themselves are regular, then the mitigation for it needs to be similarly uh, regular. Um, so we automate daily backups. That's kind of our sweet spot in terms of how far back do you actually need to go and, and you know what, what the average use case is. Um, automation is key, staying on top of it. We trigger backups at a lot of key points when people interact with, with servers as well. So knowing that you have a safety net to fall back into that's never more than a day away is great. But also knowing, hey, I'm about to do something that might break my site. Let's quickly take a backup of it now. For us, and, and in the, the kind of security and disaster recovery kind of sphere, you often talk about a recovery point objective and a recovery time objective. So the, the point is the 24-hour, the, the daily piece. We know that worst case, we've got a snapshot of our system from a day ago. Um, the recovery time is the time it takes to recover that. So is it something self-served? Is it something automated? Is it something where I push the button and it joins a big queue and it might take a week to happen? Or can I push a button and be sure that that process is, is kicking off straight away? So they're two things quite commonly that, that we get asked about and, and we kind of talk about in detail with with customers that take that more seriously. We mentioned uh, leading indicators before to, so you could sniff out problems before they even arise. But how important is visibility on issues as and when they arrive and, and do you guys offer a dashboard that, that sort of flags the um the various different issues in terms of our products specifically we, we we've got a few different 
tiers of dashboards and things that we can offer depending on the solution and, and you know the price point um, and exactly what's needed. At a top level for people, sometimes that's something as simple as just running a free uptime monitor that, that pings a server, waits for a response. If it gets one, then great, we'll assume it's online and everything's okay. In, in a more in-depth side of things and, and going to the other extreme, we've got some partnerships with, with various different companies that, that go a lot deeper than that. One of the tools we use for, for application performance monitoring um, actually takes a look at every single transaction that comes through your website, breaks it down based on which part of that stack that we talked about earlier. Um, so it, it will tell you exactly how long PHP spent executing a request, exactly how long the database took returning that data, which can then be used to either tell you when it all goes horribly wrong and it breaks or to gradually kind of as a performance degrades, maybe because of more traffic, maybe because of an attack, maybe because a developer has pushed a new feature that isn't working, you know, these kind of things. We can actually have that trigger you an email on like a traffic light system. So as performance takes a bit longer, gets a bit worse, we can kind of send emails out on an ongoing basis to, to notify people what that performance profile looks like. Just, uh, I'm not sure if I asked this before, but who who are the typical people that you deal with or who looks after sort of uh, hosting and server issues within the businesses that you, you guys deal with? Does it depend on size? So from sort of SMEs right up to the larger companies, do you have CTOs? Is it CMOs or is it even the CEO? Yeah, all, all of the above for sure. Um, it, it very much depends on the size of, of the company, but also the the sector that they're operating in. So for some of our customers where they're small businesses, you tend to find someone that's taking on a lot and they'll, they'll be operating under kind of four or five different job roles, depending on who they're talking to and, and what, what task list they've got for the day. They tend to be conversations more around how we can automate things and how they can offload some of that pressure. And that's important. You know, we, we're here to try and take a lot of this kind of more technical, more demanding, more risky. You know, if it goes wrong, what is the cost to your business if we make a wrong move? Um, we're here to try and take that off, cover it under, you know, the the helm of us having a thousand people and having the infrastructure that we have. A big part of our service is, is trying to automate taking some of those more mundane and repetitive tasks away from people so they can focus on their actual day job and, and making money for their business. On the larger side of things, yeah, we, we definitely talk to everyone from kind of technical stakeholders through to marketeers. Again, depending on what the focus is, you know, if it's content focused and they want to update lots of content all the time and it's and it's that kind of piece, then it'll be a marketeer. If it's something a bit more regulated and there's a lot more um, compliance involved, it will be like a CTO or someone. How do you see the future of cybersecurity and hosting? Where do you see that in five years' time? What, what big trends are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are ultimately governed by people and how they make money. Um, from a security flip side, that tends to be how we safeguard the money we're making as opposed to actually how, how we convert and how we sell our products. Um, a lot of the trends right now, particularly around kind of uh, search engine optimization and, and digital marketing and things are around speed. They're around um, accounting for making a platform work on as many different devices as possible, as quickly as possible. Generally, user experience is king. Uh, and I think that that probably transcends all of the different parts of the conversation, whether it's marketing or security. I think if we can provide a good user experience at the time of use in an ongoing way, you know, what happens when you leave the platform and we have to delete your data, you know, GDPR and the right to be forgotten and things, you know, all of that comes under user experience for me. Um, so I, I think it's more and more about making that frictionless, making it effortless for people and, and doing the right thing for by people in terms of their data and their security. That's a lovely note to end things on. So um, digital marketing, similarly, um, cybersecurity, it all comes down to user experience at the end of the day. What's best for the customer, for the user, for the visitors on your website? So that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Daniel and Will, thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to Daniel there. 
don't forget to subscribe or visit azonetwork.com slash podcasts to find out more information. Next week, I'll be joined by Dr. Neil Dando and Rocco Bacella as they continue global scientific collaboration through the first ever fully digital PitCon online experience. Music